Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this teaching class from the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. Today, it's part one of a two-part series on unity. You could call it a three-part series if you include my sermon from last Sunday, which would be useful background before uh, looking at the class today or the next one to come up in two weeks' time. Our topic is unity. Our title is Complete Unity, as taken from John chapter 17. Why are we looking at unity? I'll give you a brief introduction here. There's more in the sermon I preached, but I'll just say for today that it's not to say that there's a real problem with unity in Thames Valley, at least as far as I can tell. It's more that as we explore new areas, as we grow, as we mature, as we have a much more increasingly diverse congregation spread geographically across a wider and wider area, we have to pay more careful attention to our unity between our groups as well as within them. Now today we're going to focus on the unity within our groups. Next time we'll talk more about our unity between our groups. And also today we're going to focus in particular on what we can learn from Jesus and the early church that may help us with some of the principles and practicals of how to be united in our groups. So once again, I'd just like to say I don't believe there's a major problem with disunity in the Thames Valley Churches of Christ, but unity is one of those things if we don't look after it when times are good, it'll be especially difficult to try and deal with it when we have a real problem. So let's dive in and look at a couple of things here to do with unity from the examples of Jesus and the early church. First of all, Jesus. Was unity important to him? Kind of a stupid question, really. John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23 Jesus is praying that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's critical to Jesus' heart, God's heart, the example they set of their unity is one we're meant to follow, and it's critical to the fulfillment of the mission to take the gospel, the good news, to as many people as possible and to be effective in that. Jesus uh, prays for unity. Not only that, of course, uh, but he teaches on unity. Although the word isn't used in John 13, 34, 35, that's really what it's about. A new command I give you, love one another. What kind of love? As I have loved you. So you must love one another. Deep, abiding, sacrificial love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. doesn't use the word unity. But this kind of love is what builds, what maintains, what progresses, and what displays unity. Unity is one of those things that's quite hard to describe, but very, it's very real when you, when you experience it. And the, way, the primary way we experience unity is through love. And not just normal love, but the kind of love that Jesus had for his disciples that we're called to love one another with. And that, when people come in and visit, they come in and see us and they meet us and our fellowship, it's that kind of unity that they're going to notice and prayerfully will be drawn to God because of that. And it's because ultimately of our love. So Jesus prayed for unity. He taught on unity and he prom- he worked to promote unity even among his disciples. So let's look at a couple of examples of that, which I think you might find interesting. Think about these examples from a unity perspective. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 37, we have an incident with the disciples that comes after some other arguing. Look look at earlier in chapter 9 for the arguing that's going on between the disciples, the Pharisees, the crowd, all kinds of people arguing. Then after that's all been resolved, the miracle has happened, Jesus has sorted it all out. It says then in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. That's Jesus and his disciples. 
when he was in the house, so they've now gone into a house, he asked them, his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. <laughs> They're so human, the disciples. They're embarrassed, I think. They kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest, the greatest among them, of course. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He's dealing with unity issues here. The disciples are divided. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're not exactly united, are they? The disciples go quiet because they know this isn't the right way to be. They understand. They've seen him be such a servant. They know about his relationship with the Father, at least to some degree at this point. Jesus helps them. Now, the point I'd like to make primarily from this is, first of all, how important it is to Jesus that his disciples are uh, in good fellowship with one another. They're not arguing. Secondly, he has the courage to deal with it. He brings them all together and effectively makes them resolve the issue. We don't have all the detail around that, but that must be what he's doing here. And next, we also see that Jesus is careful to choose the right setting for this to be resolved. He doesn't deal with it on the road. Perhaps other times he might do. But on this occasion, he knows that he, he I mean, he's heard them in the background arguing. He knows what's going on. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask the question. But he waits till they've got to the place where they're going to. And he waits till they're in the house, not in public, in this setting. And then he asks them the question. They go quiet. And then before answering, he sits down. And then he uses um, a, a practical illustration with a child. He thinks carefully about the best way to get this across. And he teaches them with that illustration, if you like, and also his own teaching, as well as referring ultimately to his own example. I love the way that Jesus is so careful about the way that he deals with this. And this is a good lesson for us, that when we're dealing with issues of tension in our groups, right? We're talking about our group, just like a group of disciples in your own family group, your own location. How do you deal with it? One of the ways you deal with it is being careful about the setting in which you deal with the issue that you need to resolve, whether it's between two people or 12 people. And that takes some discernment, it takes some prayer, and it means that we're looking for a way to, as best we can, deal with issues of disunity or tension or, or conflict amongst one another in a safe setting. Jesus was safe, a little child was kind of a safe illustration to use, being in the house without the public being there to listen and see everything that's going on. We don't know all the reasons Jesus did it the way he did, but there are some lessons there for us. Second example, that's our first one. Second example is very similar. So right after this incident in uh, chapter 9, we go into chapter 10, and let me paraphrase a couple of bits here, but James and John this is not long after this last incident we just looked at. James and John come in and they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he asks what that is. And they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says he asks them a question about being baptized and drinking that baptism. And it's not for him to say who can sit at the right and the left. Very interesting that this comes after what he's just done and teaching them. Then, though, the ten hear about it. And they become indignant with James and John. Do you think that group was unified at that point? <laughs> I don't think so. 
They're indignant. I mean, they're having an argument. They're having a stand-up round. James, John, what were you thinking? How could you say that? Of course, they may have been hoping it would be them. Maybe they didn't have the, uh, the courage to actually ask the question the way James and John did. We don't know exactly, but Jesus calls them together. And he says, you know that those who are, rule, are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, the high officials exercise authority, not so with you. You plural, not just individually, not so with you as a group even. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be the servant, uh, the first must be the slave of all. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He brings their focus back to him. And I think this is so important for unity. If you and I are going to be unified in our local groups, it has to be because Jesus is very, very present, very obvious, very clear in our minds. It's when Jesus gets obscured that we find it hard to be unified because then we're looking for human ways to be unified. How do we help each other agree on something? How do I make my friend agree with me? Instead of how can we be in agreement with Jesus and let our little disagreements, which by comparison are so small an issue, actually not matter as much. And so that's why Jesus is not being egotistic here and pointing to himself, far from it, of course. He's saying, when you get your eyes on what really matters and you keep your eyes on me and my example and live as disciples, live like me, you'll sort all this stuff out. But you see, again, Jesus doesn't let it lie. He deals with it. And from what we can tell, successfully and the disciples end up united again. So that's the example of Jesus. Let's take a few moments, though, also to look at two examples from the early church. The first is in Acts chapter 6. I'm guessing you know the story, so let me paraphrase a little bit as we get into the beginning of Acts chapter 6 there. So we've got some disciples. Uh, the church is growing. It's fantastic. The Hellenistic Jews are complaining uh, uh, against the Hebraic Jews. The widows are being overlooked. So what do the apostles do? They overlook it themselves? Do they delegate the whole thing? Do they ignore it and hope it'll go away? Mm -mm, no, they don't. They gather all the disciples together, which is a lot. I mean, that's thousands. They gather them together and say, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect our responsibilities. So choose seven men known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. We'll give our attention to the things we're meant to be doing. The proposal pleased the whole group. They choose seven. They present them to the apostles. The apostles pray over them, lay hands on them. And it says the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Things moved on again. It's like there was a bit of a pause here. Will the early church deal with this in a healthy way? I wonder if that's kind of the, if you're making a film of this, you'd have all the exciting stuff from Acts 2, 3,000 baptized, Acts 3 and 4, some persecution, a great time of prayer, Acts 5, that Ananias and Sapphira thing, and more persecution, and the church is doing well, looks like overall. Then the first real problem for the church as a body. Now, the Ananias and Sapphira thing in Acts 5 was problematic, but it was just those two people. Now we've got a group, a group of Hebraic Jews, Hellenistic Jews. It's affecting the whole church. There's a danger here that the church will side with one group or another, even if they're not the widows concerned. And now, what, what does that early church do? Will the apostles have learned the lessons from what Jesus taught them, and how will they handle this potential disunifying situation? 
They deal with it brilliantly, don't they? What a great model for us when we have this tendency, perhaps, to have two different views over something. What do we actually do? We see a few things here. Firstly, we see that the leadership listened. They didn't hide it under the carpet. They didn't hope it would go away. They listened to the issue. And then secondly, they involved everyone. It's not always appropriate to involve everyone in every decision, but sometimes issues are so big and so potentially, potentially um, uh, challenging for a group to navigate, you need to involve everybody on some level, and they do. Thirdly, the leadership understood their own limitations. We can't do all this prayer and ministry of the word and do all this other stuff. We have our limits. That takes some discernment, some maturity, and it also takes some humility. It also takes courage because... If you're in that kind of role, sometimes you feel like I really should deal with this as well or else it'll look like I don't care. But it's not they don't care. It's that they have other areas of responsibility they need to take care of. And so they are happy to delegate. That's strength in leadership. And it's one of the hardest things to do in leadership, I know. I, I struggle to delegate. But it's, a, it's part of humility to delegate and, and trust that it's God that is running his church, not me or not somebody else who has that kind of leadership responsibility. There's discussion. Uh, they The people choose the seven. Uh, I don't suppose that was done instantly. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. They must have gone away, discussed who are we going to present to the apostles. They choose seven. So there's some discussion going on. And then the apostles pray over them and lay their hands on them. It's just a lovely commissioning site, isn't it? And, and then the church is happy. The groups appear to be reconciled. The needs are taken care of. And God blesses the church with many more people becoming Christians. Isn't that fantastic? I love this example in Acts chapter 6. A, a young, this, the church is young. They've not been around long. They haven't had much experience of being a body. And yet they, they rise to the challenge at, at this time of potential uh, disunity. The second example isn't actually so much of an example. It's just a scripture that I think is very helpful in thinking about the unity within our group. So I chose that in Acts 6 because that's the church in Jerusalem as one church. How did they handle that potential problem? But what about Romans chapter 12? Let's have a look at that for a minute here. Paul writing to the church in Rome says this, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Verse 3. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given you. For each of us has, uh, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many in a local church, uh, form one body, and each member, each of us, belongs to all the others. We're all belonging to each other in the local group. We have different gifts, according to the grace God uh, has given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, teach. Encouraging, encouragement, give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What great instructions. And here's the thing about that uh, group there, that what Paul is saying to the, the Roman Christians there is, each one of you has a gift. Find it and use it to bless the group. Some, and they're going to be different gifts. He lays out some. That's not an exhaustive list. Many more than that. So my question to you is this, have you discovered all the gifts that God by his grace has given your individual members and your group? Have you discovered all those gifts yet? And if you have, are you using them to bless the body? A group is, 
A group's unity is enhanced when every member has found what they're good at, their experiences, their talents, whatever it is that they bring to the group, they found it and they're using it. And it's it being plugged into what the group is and is becoming so that it can be the healthiest and most mature it possibly can be and the most unified it can be in the use of those gifts so then it can be a blessing to others. So to wrap up for today, when I think about unity, the word that most comes to mind when I think about a group that's unified, the word, well, the word is love, but the other word that goes along with it is trust. A unified group is a group that trusts one another. They, they bottom line, trust one another's motives, one another's hearts, one another's desire to bring a be a blessing to the group and not try and control the group or just take from the group, but to contribute and to make the group what it can be as a local body of Christ. It's about trust. Trusting one another is built by loving one another. It's built by resolving disputes. It's built by working together to solve problems. It's built by using one's gifts and respecting one another in that way. And also by being honest, by being honest when there are real issues that need resolving. So some questions for you to uh, perhaps wrestle with and discuss in your local family group or location. Here are some suggestions. Number one, are there any undealt with tensions in your group? I mean, major ones. May, there may always some niggles here and there that may not be that significant. I don't know. It's up to you to decide that. But the examples we looked at with Jesus, they were major. Are there any undealt with tensions in your group that you need to figure out the best way to resolve? Secondly, what is the next significant decision your group needs to make? How will you approach it to ensure maximum unity on the decision that is made? Thirdly, how can you help each other play their part, discover their gifts, and then use them for the benefit of the local body? Are there any undealt with tensions? Do you have any big decisions? How do you help each other play your part? I hope you find that helpful. If you have any suggestions or any questions, do drop me a line, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. And I hope between now and the next time you find your unity deepening and developing until we all reach complete unity in Christ. Till the next time, take care and God bless.